Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to Tea Break Time Travel, where every month we look at a different archaeological object and take you on a journey into their past. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Tea Break Time Travel. I am your host, Matilda Siebrecht, and today I'm savouring a rooibos caramel tea because, you know, the nights are getting longer, the mornings are getting cooler, so I'm trying to embrace the uh, autumn spirit with some with some nice caramel. And joining me on my tea break today is Andrew Marion Jones. I hope that I pronounced that correctly. I realised I forgot to ask for a pronunciation check before we started, who is a professor of archaeology. Right, yeah. It was good. Yeah. <laughs> who is professor of archaeology at the University of of Stockholm. Thank you for joining me today, Andrew. Are you uh, also on tea this morning? Yes. So um, as a British person, my kind of blood is entirely made of tea. (laughs) (laughs) I start the day with a English breakfast, but uh, I've now switched to chamomile. (laughs) Especially because do I detect a slight northern twang to your accent? Yeah. 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 Ah, so, so indeed, the the home of tea in, in the north yeah, of England, exactly. one could argue. <laughs> a chamomile, though, ah, oh, that's quite different. You you need to to be it's, relaxed. <laughs> it's yeah. It's um, having moved to Sweden recently, uh, teas. The selection of teas are, are very different here. So, uh, green tea and chamomile uh-huh. seem to be the, the teas most preferable to me. They they do do rubosh and uh, <laughs> rubosh. And other teas, but I, for some reason, the, the blend of rubosh tea, I can drink rubosh in uh, Brit in Britain, but in Sweden, it does something strange to me. <laughs> so, uh, so it- I'm on camel this morning. Fair enough. It is interesting indeed how all the different, because I lived in the Netherlands for a long time and there mm. as well, they have a lot of infusion black teas. So it, if it's a mango tea, it's actually black tea with some mango in it rather yeah. than... A mango tea. So it's interesting other different uh, different things. Well, I hope, uh, hope that you're feeling nice and chill and relaxed then with your chamomile yeah. tea. Yeah. Um, so as you are a professor of archaeology, you have a lot of experience uh, under your belt in archaeological research, but how did you actually first get into the topic of archaeology? Kind of accidentally. <laughs> I actually started out life, went to university to study science and really didn't enjoy the science very much and went on an archaeological dig, which was run by the Scottish Field School. So I went to university in Scotland, Mm -hmm. which was run by the Scottish Field School, which is a kind of voluntary organisation. We were digging a Pictish site (gasps) in uh, Fife. So I was actually at university in Dundee, Oh, okay. <laughs> and we just crossed the uh, crossed the bridge over to Fife. Mm-hmm. And since then, I decided, around that time, I decided, actually, I really didn't enjoy studying biochemistry. <laughs> Fair um, enough. 
so I, I managed to switch into studying archaeology at Glasgow University. Mm-hmm. Um, the Scottish system is very, uh, it, it's, it's like the American system. You can major a minor and you can pick up grades. So I'd done several years in Dundee mm-hmm. as a scientist and was able to kind of carry those grades over to Glasgow. That's very useful. Which was really good. And uh, since I started, I started studying in Glasgow in 1989. And uh, since then, you know, I haven't stopped as an archaeologist. You know, once I discovered it, (laughs) I uh, absolutely loved it. And um, I gravitated. I think, you know, having studied the sciences, I gravitated towards the the humanities side of the subject. So uh, doing archaeological theory was was really exciting to me, and uh, you know that that's pretty much where I've stayed. Hmm. I discovered archaeological theory, discovered French philosophy, continental philosophy, hmm. and uh, you know kept kept exploring that. Yeah, no, amazing. And it's very interesting indeed to hear that you're, because we've had a couple of people on who sort of had an interest in one subject, but weren't really feeling it and then found archaeology, but combined them. But it's interesting to hear that you indeed went in completely a different direction. Well, I did, I mean, funnily, I did use the biochemistry for my PhD. So I did do GCMS, gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, or analysis of lipids, in in pottery, oh, that very pottery, scientific indeed. <laughs> which is super scientific. Yeah. Um, so I kind of, you know, I've always had that, always had that in the in the kind of background. But having done that in my PhD, I uh, you know, and so that was quite intense over a kind of four year period. Mm-hmm. I decided, actually, I'm going to shift towards studying the archaeology of art instead. Yeah. So that's interesting. And I mean, well, I guess we'll, we'll come back to that a bit later, but in, it, was there anything in particular that drew you to the, the archaeology of art specifically rather than, I mean, because there's such a broad range of theories and, and uh, that kind of topic? I guess I'd always, again, through the theory, um, I'd always had an interest in art. And while I was at Glasgow, I was living with artists the whole time. So all my flatmates were um, attending Glasgow School of Art. Okay. So I spent lots of time talking high-blown French theory with, uh, with a bunch of artists. <laughs> okay. And uh, since then, I've, I mean, I've always had an interest in contemporary art and uh, mm-hmm. just kept, kept that going and, and sort of veered from the so the the uh, stuff I was studying for the PhD was uh, grooveware from the site of Barnhouse up in Orkney mm-hmm. and grooveware as you may know is uh, decorated with curvilinear designs okay. which, which uh, we also find in Irish passage tombs mm-hmm. and I actually ended up getting more interested in that the designs on the pottery, they're not on the 
I'm a little bit. The contents of the pot, yeah. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Well, we'll go, I think we'll go into that a bit more later. But for mm. now, as this is indeed a uh, time travel tea break, if you could travel back in time, where exactly would you go and why? Well, I, again, I think probably the archaeology of art would be my main guide, my main uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> area of interest. So, I mean, somewhere like Nazca would be pretty cool just to see how those Nazca lines were made and to uh, completely finally dispel Eric von Däniken and the idea of uh, spaceships landing in the uh, <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and um, Peru would also be pretty cool. I've written little bits about it in, in general kind of books. Mm-hmm. And that's like amazing. It's it's like something out of Indiana Jones. It's a, a jungle temple. Oh wow! Okay. With all these amazing carved designs on the exterior, mm-hmm. and they're probably taking extremely potent psychedelics okay. uh, before. <laughs> so the the initiates are kind of entering the the uh, temple, and they're probably feeding them with these. Uh, you know, ridiculous Ayahuasca-type psychedelics. Um, And you've got priests in the temple using the acoustics of the temple to create ghostly sounds. I mean, this is all archaeological interpretation, but it'd be Mm -hmm. lovely to actually see what was happening during the creation of these. You know, it's got amazing uh, reliefs, carved reliefs of uh, shamanic hybrid kind of human animal figures mm-hmm. so, although you'd uh, hope if you were there you wouldn't be one of the you know initiates you'd have to definitely yeah, take yeah. a step back that might be a bit of a harrowing experience exactly. from the sounds of it yeah okay well no that sounds uh it sounds incredible it's definitely very different as well to any uh any other suggestions that we've had so far on the podcast going down to uh, uh jungle temples in peru so looking yeah. forward to that journey but for today thank you very much for joining me on this tea break and before we talk more about today's object we're first going to journey back to around 3000 bc to the area that we now know as Aberdeenshire in northern Scotland. It's early morning, the first rays of sunshine are only just beginning to pierce through the thick mist that's managed to roll its way all the way up through the valleys from the distant ocean. The dawn bird song is muffled, doesn't quite cover the sound of rustling footsteps. Suddenly, some figures emerge from the mist, wrapped up in warm in an outer layer of furs, thick leather boots, the insulating hay lining sticking out slightly at the top as they tread their way heavily through the dew-laden grass. One of the figures stumbles slightly, lots of rabbits around here, almost falling over. The bags that are slung across their back tip out their contents. The group stops and helps them to gather their fallen items, searching through the tall grass for all the objects before heading on. But there's something that they've forgotten. Hidden amongst the ferns just off the path is a ball, so dark in colour it's almost invisible in the shadows. As we look closer, we see that actually it's made from stone and has been carved into four knobs decorated with beautiful swirling patterns. And today we are looking at, for those of you who have been listening into this before, my absolute favourite object, the carved stone balls of Scotland. And we'll get into the details soon. But first, as always, uh, I wanted to have a look at the most asked questions on the internet about this object, courtesy of Google search. Weirdly, there weren't actually that many sort of autofill questions in Google. I guess people don't know about these objects or aren't quite as interested maybe as I am. But uh, the, the two sort of main ones that came up, first one was, of course, 
what are the carved stone balls? And I guess we'll get into the details in, in the next section, but perhaps sort of a, a basic description, Andrew, or sort of a, the, the kind of base facts of these these balls. <laughs> as, you, as you say, they are dark stone and they're mainly kind of um, made of really tough stones like granites, really hot, hard stones to carve. And they're carved sometimes with the same kind of curvilinear designs I was talking about earlier. And there's two sizes of balls, one's about 70 millimetres, one's uh, just over 100 millimetres in size. And they can be carved in lots of different ways. You, you said series of kind of knobs mm-hmm. on them, but they can also have balls with uh, a whole series of knobs, almost like... Um, looking like hedgehogs or something, or, uh, <laughs> you know, raspberries, something like that. Uh-huh. So uh, they, there's, you know, a, a real variety of, of uh, shapes of these things. Mm-hmm. But uh, just to, to quickly rec- clarify, though, so are they always decorated in some way, or do you also have just... No, no, they, they're not always decorated. Uh, there's quite a lot of them are plain in actual fact the research I've done on them shows that you know an enormous number are actually completely plain so one of the things we did was visit a whole series of uh, museums in Scotland and England and in museum collections there are actually quite a lot of plain balls which were kind of unrecognised with often labelled as cannonballs or, you know, post-medieval, you know. So we actually did a lot of work trying to show these things were actually Neolithic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the idea of someone dropping a ball out of their bag that's only kind of partially carved is exactly, I think, what was happening quite a lot of the time. Oh, excellent. Well, I mean, we did go back in time and see it happening, so uh, <laughs> it makes sense. And, I mean, they're called the, the Scottish carved stone balls. Are they only found in Scotland then? No, I mean, they're mainly found in Scotland, but mm-hmm. they are also found in Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland and the Republic. And there are also some examples in Northern England. Mm-hmm. As far south as Yorkshire, Bridlington, I think. There's even one in Scandinavia. Okay. <laughs> There's one in Norway, oh. mm-hmm. which I've n- never seen. I'm kind of hoping to visit at some point. Ah, now we know why you went to Stockholm. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's in, yeah, it's, it's uh, in Bergen. <laughs> getting getting so close. Yeah, <laughs> true. I mean, yeah, dude, it's a long, long country. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, and are the carved stone balls are they always found? So, I mean, in our in our one, they're sort of dropped out of a a bag and are lying mm. on the ground, sort of a, a an alone find, I guess, a lone find. Are they found in usually particular site types, uh, or is it varied? So they're really fiendishly difficult things to study because most of them are you know, stray finds, lone finds. Mm-hmm. And they hardly any of them have archaeological contacts. Oh. So there are a few from kists in Aberdeenshire, but 
Excuse me, the best um, the best contexts they come from are actually Neolithic settlements in Orkney and in hmm. the Hebrides. So, um, which which relates to the next question, actually, which which was okay. uh, who made the carved stone balls and when? So they're they're sort of mainly dated to the Neolithic, then. Yeah, so they're, they're dated to the Neolithic, and we now have much clearer sense of the dates. Hmm. And I'm, I'm just going to have to look this up because I've actually written about this, and I can't remember the uh, precise dates we came up with, 29th or 28th century Cal BC. Okay. Roughly is, is when they date from. Okay. So they're, um, and, and down to around about the 26th century Cal BC. So there's okay. quite a, a, a short kind of period of time in which they're made. That's um, really interesting. I mean, a mere 400 years. Yeah, wow. And, and how many are there? How many sort of examples? There's there over, it's that's actually a really difficult question. There's at least four hundred, mm-hmm. and depends on the literature that you look at. Mm. <laughs> uh, Dorothy Marshall, who first uh, who first kind of catalogued them at the National Museum of Scotland, had over four hundred, but since then. Um, more have been found in excavations. Uh, mm-hmm. So the big Nessabrogga excavation, they've found a uh, carved ball. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's other excavations in Orkney that have, have found uh, carved balls quite recently. Okay. Um, oh, I don't and then they're also being found, they're also being excavated from museums. So mm-hmm. one of the interesting articles by uh, Alan Savile some years ago was was this costume ball that he discovered because it had actually been on TV. It had been on a TV programme. Someone had shown it from Bromley Museum in London. Oh. And he, it was, he, he was researching costume balls in the National Museum of Scotland and he'd never seen this one. Huh. So, you know, balls are appearing yeah. from museum, museum collections all the time, so at least four hundred, I would say, is okay. is a, a reasonable estimate okay, for yeah. uh, how many there. Are. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, that's fascinating. Well, thank you for that little introduction. I think we've sort of covered Google's most search questions now. Then, but uh, let's have a very quick break, and we will be back soon. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back, everyone. So we now know a little bit more about carved stone balls, but Andrew, maybe you can tell us even more about it. So we spoke a little bit about the kind of variation of of these balls themselves. Yeah. What is it that actually links them then together? How do we know that they're one category of the carved stone balls? Okay, that's quite, quite a tough one. So in terms, I mean, in terms of category, in terms of typology, there are a whole series of different 
types that uh, as I mentioned Dorothy Marshall mm-hmm. earlier and she's one of the first people back in the uh, late 70s to catalogue these these balls. Mm-hmm. It's mainly their, their size, so most of them are around 70 millimetres in size and then you've got this larger group that are just over 100 mm-hmm. millimetres. So it's mainly their size, their geology, so most of them are made of metamorphic or igneous rocks, um, which are obviously the the uh, part of the geology of the northeast of Scotland. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then you've got similarities of of design within the within the the balls as well. Mm. Yeah, so so that's that's what links them together as an object mm-hmm. as a cat- object category. And so how many, so you've said that there's sort of varying designs, how many different designs are there? So you had mentioned that there were some that were smooth, there were some that looked like hedgehogs. Mm. Um, are there kind of variations within those designs as well? Well, that's actually a really tough question. I mean, one of the things... <laughs> what I'm here I, for. <laughs> yeah, that's one of, one of the things my research has done is actually break down that concept of them having typologies. So one of the first things I did when I was studying these objects was uh, working with artists. In fact, we talked about art earlier. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, working with artists at uh, Winchester School of Art, we actually made calfstone stone balls. Okay. And I looked at the, uh, the papers on these objects and their categories and I thought, hold on a minute, aren't we just looking at different stages in the making process? Hmm. So I wanted to test that out, I wanted to see if, if, you know, it kind of worked in my mind, but uh, I wanted to see if it really worked in practice. So, I mean, this is going back 10 years ago now. I did a workshop with... uh, Ian Dawson, who was head of sculpture at uh, Winchester School of Art, and we brought together archaeologists and uh, sculpture students, and we made calfstone balls. But we made them, we cheated. We didn't make them out of stone. I was about to ask, did you use yeah, the hard, hard yeah, igneous no, rock? we made them out of plaster. Ah, now, okay, okay. And so I, I presented to the students, my hypothesis that these things were made in a series of sequential stages. So you start off kind of making a, a completely spherical ball, a smooth ball, and then you divide up spaces on that ball. And then you start carving out between the spaces. And as you carve out between the spaces, the knobs which are found on these balls appear Oh. Um, so my hypothesis worked. They are the various uh, types that uh, Dorothy Marshall identifies are actually stages in a process of making. And one, I mean, one of the things that workshop did, which was really amazing, was to teach us how complex these things are. I mean, I'm not a sculptor. But I found actually making these things 
three-dimensionally to be really complex trying to understand the three-dimensional kind of geometry mm. of of these things was really really difficult and in actual fact the uh, knobs with um the, the balls with uh, four knobs are some of the easiest to make oh really I would have thought it was the other way around because they would need to be so perfectly positioned, but the ones with multiple, you could just kind of cheat a little bit. But no, that's yeah. not the case. <laughs> well, I guess if you looked carefully, I haven't looked at so many of the multi-knot ones, mm. but I think if you look, I mean, it, they are a little bit haphazard. Mm. You're right. But um, as we were learning, we used the just uh, four knobs and, and that was uh, that was actually we found that to be relatively simple okay to, to understand uh, so you mentioned that these are made out of plaster are you are you planning at any point to to re- replicate the workshop using stone no I, don't, I, th- I mean basically this workshop was just to to kind of understand the process it was a bit of experimental archaeology to Mm-hmm. to see if my hypothesis actually worked. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And since then, so I did a very uh, large project on, uh, not just on cast symbols, but on decorated Neolithic objects mm-hmm. from across uh, Britain and Ireland. Was this the Making a Mark? This is Making a Mark, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we visited, I think, pretty much every museum in Britain and Ireland that mm-hmm. had... Uh, Neolithic objects in it. And we were doing digital imaging, so we were doing uh, structure from motion, photogrammetry, and uh, reflectance transformation imaging, mm-hmm. uh, RTI. So we were recording the balls to see if we could see any any evidence of working on the uh, on the surface. Okay, this relates to so I so I do microware analysis and useware mm. analysis, and uh, I really really wanted to do a project on the carved stone balls from a microware uh-huh. perspective to see if I could do anything, but it was yeah it was too complicated because it seemed that they because of the way that they had been found and processed post findings, it was sort of unsure if a useware study would actually be possible because their context is so unknown, <laughs> if that makes yeah. sense. So uh, we didn't end up doing it. But that sounds, yeah, really interesting. And did you then find that there was evidence of kind of post-working then? Yeah, so basically, so once once I worked out that what you have, the, the kind of types that we find are actually just points in the process of making, I then understood that, you know, the working of these objects was was really important. We actually found evidence of, so they're kind of, they're working and they're kind of um, making up their mind about what the design is. So this, in, in some cases, they're, they're starting off with one design and then they erase it and then, then, then start uh, a different design. Oh. There quite a lot of balls that we looked at that were just, completely unfinished. Yeah, okay. But, I mean, one of the multi-knobbed balls where they just they started pecking out um, spaces for 
individual knobs and then they just left it. And obviously, it was too much bother. <laughs> One of the things we realised was that actually those plane balls were really important mm-hmm. because the that was a kind of early stage in the process. They mm-hmm. smoothed the, the ball into a sphere and then they just left it. And, you know, that was certainly a... a uh, the balls that had been discarded partway in the process. If they're so, it's during the Neolithic, so presumably they're using stone tools. So you mentioned pecking, but from from my memory, I mean, for example, the Taui ball is so oh, the, the design is so carved yeah. beautifully. I mean, it, would that have been using flint tools? Do you think that that's maybe late Neolithic? So we're starting to yeah. see metal. <laughs> I don't think. No, I don't think it is metal. I mean, this is one of the debates um, back in. Uh, before we started, actually, so Stuart Needham had suggested that uh, some of them may be Bronze Age okay. because of the fineness of their working. Mm-hmm. And there are some from uh, Bronze Age uh, kissed in, in Aberdeenshire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things I wanted to firmly show was that they, you know, as far as we could see, that most of them, were Neolithic, and the, mm-hmm. the best contacts we could find were Neolithic settlements. Mm-hmm. So, but, yeah, the details of how they're made still escapes me, to be honest. It's, <laughs> it's uh, exactly, I mean, uh, the tower ball is just uh, staggering. Yeah. And this uh, other amazing ones is the Alfred ball as well, which is... Also, also from Aberdeenshire, mm-hmm. which is uh, in the Calvin Grove Museum in Glasgow. Okay. And, I mean, it, at kind of first sight, it looks like a, a tennis ball. It's, it's not got the, the kind of knobs on its surface, not very uh, heavily carved. But mm-hmm. what they've done is carve in beautiful detail in between the knobs so the what's uh, technically known as the interspaces between the knobs are beautifully carved. Oh, um, right. Yes, yes. I think I saw a picture of that one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so yeah. the Taui ball gets all the uh, kind of publicity because it is amazing. Yeah. But this one is, is almost as nice. Yeah, yeah. One of the amazing things we discovered with the Taui ball was that's incomplete as well. Really? Yeah. So all the publications of the Toei ball show you this beautifully carved ball, and it is beautifully carved, Mm -hmm. but what what they don't show you is that one of the knobs is completely uncarved. True. So, um, you know, that was until we actually visited museums and and picked that one up, you know, we, we didn't... We didn't know that that was uncarved. Hmm. So even the most amazingly carved objects are also sort of partially complete. Partially done. Oh, what could they have become if Mm, if they'd been given time? (laughs) And we briefly mentioned earlier the idea of use. So we've talked a bit about kind of Mm. what they are, how they might have been made. But as uh, when I was looking this up, one of the main big debates is, of course, about about why 
they were made um, and what they were used for. So why, why is there so much debate about this? How, how is it so difficult to understand what they would have been used for? I think, the, I mean, the debate is basically they're fascinating objects. I mean, I, I think they're one of the most interesting objects that I agree. <laughs> you can look at from the Neolithic. Yeah. And they, they fascinate people. They've fascinated such a range of people. So there's, it's not just archaeologists. Artists are interested in them. Mathematicians are interested in them. I think it... It's just striking because they're they're so some of them so beautifully made and so intricately made, and then we just cannot work out what the hell they're used for. Um, so, so what are some of the most popular theories then about? Well, this? there's. I mean, it depends where you look. I mean, you you, you googled it and there wasn't much coming up, but there's some amazing stuff on the internet. <laughs> around them so uh, there's discussions of them as kind of alien eggs and, oh, and mm-hmm. you know yeah. all these kind of slightly crazy ideas. the pseudo the pseudo yeah. input yeah <laughs> um, and there's one theory that was popular what 10 15 years ago was from a, a experimental archaeologist in Exeter and he argued that they were used for rolling megaliths, so like ball bearings. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And he actually devised a whole experimental method with uh, Exeter students where they they shifted megaliths around using, uh, again, they didn't use stone, but they used uh, wooden balls on the right side. I can't imagine the Towie ball <laughs> being used nah, as a simple ball bearing, I must say. Well, the, the weird thing was, was they did this in the Stonehenge landscapes and they had these these runners, these uh, smooth kind of wooden channels mm-hmm. uh, with with uh, wooden balls oh, okay. placed mm-hmm. between them. And they did successfully move, mm. you know, megaliths of a tonne in weight. But, I mean, there are actually no balls further south than Yorkshire. Oh, right. There's, there's a lot of megaliths in Aberdeenshire, but no cast symbols associated with them. Mm, and okay. if my dates are correct, then they predate those, uh, those megaliths by, okay. uh, you know, at least, at least 500 years. Okay, yeah. So likely a, a nice theory, but not necessarily. Practical. Yeah. So I mean, I mean, he demonstrated yes, he could u- use uh, um, balls to move megaliths, but mm-hmm. I mean, as you say, things like the Towie ball, and many of the balls have kind of knob these knobs on them. They're really not very good for. They're not spherical. They're, they're uh, they would roll right, very badly. Of course. Yeah. So, um, so I, I mean, I kind of reject that that theory. And then there's, I mean, there's there's whole papers on the aerodynamics of these objects, and um, there's a an amazing paper in the Proceedings of the Society of Antiquities of Scotland, which looks at the aerodynamics of uh, car symbols. 
But then Dan uh, argues that basically they're throwing them at wolves or kind of uh, any any uh, animals attacking you know, of sheep. But just throwing them with their hand or because one thing I guess yeah. I could understand is with these, the sort of grooves in between the knobs that maybe there's rope or string or something. Yeah. But... So bowlers are one of the... That's it, bowlers, uh, yes. <laughs> one of the uh, interpretations. And actually that goes back to uh, John Evans, the, the, um, the kind of early researcher on, on uh, stone tools. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, that's not unreasonable, but I, I still don't quite understand if if they're throwing these objects at uh, animals, why carve Especially, in so much detail? it's not even like just you're just whittling away at a thing. If you're saying it's really hard stone and they're using mm. flint tools, that must be quite a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think my... My uh, provisional best interpretation at the moment mm-hmm. is actually it's the process of making them mm. that's important. Mm-hmm. And I've argued that what they're doing is effectively learning how to carve stone. And one of the things, again, going back to this workshop in, in uh, Winchester, one of the things we realised that was involved in making these things was all the kind of um, practices that you would need to, to carve stones. So we started off hammering the balls to, to shape them. So it's uh, you know, very kind of heavy pecking of, of the balls would be needed. And then by the end, we were kind of carving them out. Mm-hmm. You've got a whole series of different things. So you'd start off with polishing you're shaping, you're hammering, you're pecking, and then you're polishing. Mm-hmm. And those are two things that we find happening with uh, stone tools in the Neolithic. And so it's then, almost like a portfolio of... Yeah, <laughs> I think they're basically showing off, you know, look, look <laughs> at what I can do. But, um, but, but they're actually they're, they're learning through making. Mm-hmm. One of the most amazing kind of encounters we had when we were um, doing the Making a Mark project and, and with Carved and Balls was visiting a small community museum in Glasgow, mm-hmm. in uh, kind of outer edges of Glasgow. And the people running the museum were stone cutters. Okay. And... At the time, I was talking about them as art, and they were like, these are, this is art, how can you call this art? And uh, then I started talking to them about what I thought was happening, which is that they were kind of making them, that these were kind of like practice pieces to, mm-hmm. to show off how, how they could make them. Huh. And these guys just, their eyes lit up, and uh, they instinctively knew what I was talking about because they'd they been trained in exactly the same way. Okay. To, you know, so they'd be given a lump of stone and, you know, told to shape it this way and, you know, do this before lunch, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to at least master this this process before lunch. And yeah. yeah they yeah. just completely 
understood that uh, that people in prehistory could actually be working these objects to uh, in order to kind of understand how to work stone and, and yeah. you know the, the the kind of properties of stone. So that's my best interpretation at the moment. One of the things I will say though is that these are amazing objects and I don't think I've got to the bottom of them <laughs> at all. People seem to have been interested by this idea of them as things kind of in process, things be mm-hmm. things in the making. But I don't think and you know it wouldn't surprise me if someone comes along and says actually you know they their fishing weights or their <laughs> loom weights or their you know something uh, and now we can now we can work this out. I, I don't think I've uh, finally got to the bottom of them. Um, and you know I'm I'm probably going to keep studying them. You know, That's a good excuse to, too, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well. I, th- I think we should probably stop there because uh, I, I need to top up my tea. But uh, for everyone listening, um, hopefully you can also top up your tea a little bit and we will be back very soon. Welcome back, everyone. I hope that the teacups are fuller and the biscuit jar is emptier. So thank you so much for telling us all about those amazing objects, Andrew. But we did talk a little bit already about kind of art and the, the concept of mm-hmm art in archaeology and in prehistory and how you first became interested in it. So how would you say that the the kind of topic of art, uh, and I'm using this with kind of inverted commas, because yeah. I never know what, what terminology to use in this respect, in the field of archaeology, how do you think that topic has kind of developed over the years? Is it something that is quite commonly studied now? Is it always studied? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of always been studied, I guess, but it's had a, a renaissance in the last... Um, Maybe ten years. There seems to have been a lot more focus on the archaeology of art fairly recently. I'm not entirely sure why that is. Um, I mean, I've always been studying it. I've, I I started out studying rock art in Scotland, and uh, I mean, started out right at the beginning with with this grooved ware pottery. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, I've always been fascinated by it, but the, I mean, there's there's, there's a, a large kind of uh, large group of researchers studying rock art globally, and, and that's I mean, that's been of interest. I think since the uh, pretty much since the discipline began. And what would be your kind of elevator pitch if someone would say, "But why? Why is it important to look at look at art in the past?" I mean, I guess it's important because you're looking at how, I mean, the, the, the usual pitch is to say, oh, you're looking at human expression in the past, mm-hmm. but actually I'm not not so interested in the sort of representational aspects of art. I'm more interested in how things are made and mm. I'm more interested in how people are relating to their environment through making. So uh, how they're actually, um, I mean, rock art is the, the best example of that, where they're actually carving into living rock surfaces mm. or painting 
on living rock surfaces. And what what that's giving you is a sense of how they're relating to particular places and um, how, how they're relating to themselves, how they're relating to people in the past. So you can often see surfaces that are carved over and over or painted over and over. Mm. And, you know, I think it's, it's about relationship. It's about people's relationship to the, the environment and uh, to each other in the past which is kind of what archaeology is. I'd say quite a key part of archaeology. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, it is quite a a sort of complex topic, the idea of art, because as you say, it's so kind of based in what people are interpreting and how they're relating Mm -hmm. themselves to the world around them. So is it possible to study that archaeologically or what, what are the difficulties of that kind of research topic, would you say? It is possible to study archaeologically. It's, I mean, it's, you know, I think the instinct in the archaeology of art to begin with was to study art in terms of representation and, and symbol. And there's nothing wrong with that. But um, I've kind of shifted uh, the conversation towards things like making um, and the, yeah, the process of relating mm to environment and to each other Mm -hmm. um, through art making. I actually think the study of art's got as much relationship to the study of technology. I mean, I think actually the study of processes of making through technology, Shin Apertoire, those are actually really useful approaches Mm-hmm. to take to the study of art. So I think it's 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 definitely uh, doable. Mm-hmm. I don't think it has to be uh, something that's beyond the reach of, uh, of us as archaeologists. Mm-hmm. And... Of, you mentioned before uh, you've worked with artists and you worked with the with the stonecutters. Would you say that it's important in this topic to already have an understanding of of art or craft, or is it more important to work with others? How how does that balance out? Would you say? Yeah, I think it's it it is useful. I mean, I I mean, I think it's useful to disentangle yourself from conversations about art because I think we tend to get into a, a tangle over the definition of art um, in archaeology and I think it's it, art's one of those uh, words in the English language that's actually extremely difficult to pin down mm-hmm. um, and it's extremely difficult to pin down archaeologically but also in the contemporary setting, you know, the debates over what art is mm. are constantly changing. So I found it very useful to read, you know, contemporary art discussions around what art is. Mm-hmm. But actually working with makers is really, really useful. Artists tend to think completely differently to the lateral thinkers. Mm-hmm. And it's always enjoyable to work with people like that. Like that. So I've worked over the last 10 years with uh, 
Ian Dawson and Louis, who's based at Winchester, and Louise and Lincoln, who's based at Central St. Martins in London. So one of the amazing things we've been doing since the Godston Vaults project is working with makers in, Indigenous makers in Canada. Oh, okay, nice. So we've been working uh, with uh, members of the Blackfoot community. Okay. So amazingly, the um, the digital techniques are used for looking at the Godston Vaults. The artists are working with got really excited by the techniques. And as I said, Louisa is based at Central St. Martins, which is one of the biggest art schools in the UK. Okay. Mm-hmm. And she taught those techniques to all sorts of people in the building. So they're now using these same techniques that we use in archaeology in the fashion school. And, and Central St. Martins fashion oh, okay. school is, is like, you know, they all the kind of, the leading edge fashion is uh, coming up central St. Martins. Yeah, we're, we're um, expanding, we're expanding yeah, the archaeological field. So, so I, I love the fact that archaeological techniques are being used. We were approached by a lady working in the gallery at uh, the University of Lethbridge in Alberta, in Canada. And the University of Lethbridge is sited on the, on what's known as Treaty 7 land, so it's a part of a uh, Blackfoot uh, reservation. Mm-hmm. And there are quite a lot of Blackfoot people working in the university. And uh, we, we put on an exhibition at the end of the Making a Mark project. And uh, this, this lady attended and immediately said these techniques could be used to record uh, Blackfoot artifacts, huh. so we've been we've been doing that. So we've been recording artifacts that are in uh, UK museums, mm-hmm. and which have been kind of lost by the Blackfoot. They didn't even know they were there. Uh, oh gosh, okay. we've been working with makers. So they're part of the the. Uh, aim of the project has been to kind of revitalise these craft traditions mm-hmm. in Blackfoot territory okay. by uh, digitally recording objects and uh, kind of giving those digital records then back to the Blackfoot community. Amazing. And this is a project that's still ongoing or it's... It's, it's pretty much winding up now. We... we did it mainly over the pandemic. So over the course of the pandemic, I spent each week uh, talking to people on the Blackfoot Reservation in in Alberta. Um, And we've now run out of money, unfortunately. So the project is kind of winding up. But uh, the, the main aim was to create a website with selected objects and the website is managed by Blackfoot community. Okay. Mm. So almost like a digital version of the of the objects and the technologies. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's kind of I mean digital repatriation I guess is is yes. one one way of thinking about it, but it's not I mean it's not really repatriation, it's more about uh, revitalising 
uh, crafts mm-hmm. um, that have been lost. Yeah. So oh, I've yeah. learned a lot about um, porcupines and how to uh, <laughs> how to use porcupine quills. And do you find there's quite a difference in the, because I imagine for the previous projects as they were focused possibly mainly on, on British prehistory, mm. you mainly worked with kind of British crafters and, and yeah. uh, artists, but do you find that there's quite a cultural difference in working with artists from other places? Are there different perspectives being given? I mean, there are different perspectives. If it, the, the, the main thing with the Blackfoot is that um, unlike Western artists, for, for the Blackfoot, these objects are actually living Mm. They're, they're living beings. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that's, and that's kind of something we discuss all the time in in archaeology, or uh, maybe people had a sense of animacy, but actually to be talking to people who believe that these objects are alive mm-hmm. is, is really striking. Yeah, that would be almost interesting then to do a, you know, a, an expanded carved stone ball project, but taking them out outside of the UK, working yeah. with different cultures and uh, seeing how they would I, interpret them. I didn't show any for people carved stone balls. I think they'd be <laughs> kind of fascinated by them. Yeah. I mean, they have their own rock art traditions. Mm-hmm. So one of the biggest rock art sites in North America is on Blackfoot territory. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, you know, could be, could be a future project. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are there any uh, exciting future projects related to, to carving, art, archaeology that are coming up uh, that you... Uh, well, I'm doing several, several things at the moment. At the moment, I'm working in Portugal on uh, in the Coa Valley, which... Um, is one of the most amazing places I've ever been to. It's in northern Portugal, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's a valley system that has uh, rock art from the Gravettian in Paleolithic, okay. uh, so thirty thousand BP, wow, up to the twentieth century. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and our, our focus is actually. I'm working with Portuguese colleagues, and our focus is on post-Paleolithic stuff. So we're looking at um, Neolithic and Calcolithic art, which is actually painted, which is a departure for me. I've, I've always always worked with um, with uh, carved <laughs> materials, so actually working with painting, yeah, ochre painted. Oh, amazing. Um, it's, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Sounds sounds very interesting. Well, it's, it sounds like you have a lot to be getting on with, so uh, I I should probably let you get back to it, let you get back to work. But thank you so, so much for, for joining me today, Andrew, to to talk all about the, uh, the calf stone balls and art in archaeology. Okay, that's great. Thanks. It's, it's um, been great to, to chat. 
<laughs> and if anyone wants to find out more about uh, Andrew's work, about the projects that we've mentioned, or about the Carvstone Balls, just check the show notes on the podcast homepage. Also, do keep an eye on my socials, The Archaeologist Teacup, for a very exciting Carvstone Ball announcement that will be coming up in the next month or so. I hope that you enjoyed our journey today. If you want to help support the show and all of the other amazing series that form the Archaeology Podcast Network, why not become a member? You'll be helping me and my fellow hosts to create even more amazing archaeological content and interview fantastic expert guests like Andrew. And you will also have exclusive access to ad-free episodes, bonus content like our quarterly online seminars, which look at different topics within archaeology. For more information, check out the homepage at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. I hope that you enjoyed our journey today. If you did, make sure to like, follow, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next month for another episode of Tea Break Time Travel. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.